Shalom, shalom, friends. Great to see you. Thank you for being here today. It is exciting to uh, think about Socrates today. Um, I don't know how many people in the world are thinking about Socrates today, but there should be more maybe. <laughs> and we've just added uh, we've just added a good group to those thinking about about him today. So let's start with a little poll question. Okay, thinking about truth. Option one, I tend to think that everything is a little bit untrue. Option two, I tend to think that everything has a bit of truth to it. Option three, there are truths and there are lies, illusions, misunderstandings, and there is very little overlap. Okay, friends, not always easy to make a choice, but let's see what you uh, will vote for here today. Most important vote of your life, aside from whatever we're voting for in 2024. <laughs> okay, let's see our results here. Okay, very interesting. 13% think um, everything is a little bit untrue. 63% think everything has a bit of truth to it, and 25% think that there are truths, and then there are lies, illusions, misunderstandings, and very little overlap. Okay, very interesting. Now, friends, it's good timing for us to enter the Greco-Roman world because we have Pesach tomorrow night. Those of us who are engaging with Passover, of course, this holiday is deeply influenced by, that, by the Hellenistic world. Um, just to give a few, you know, a few obvious examples, um, the afikomen, the part that's hidden, is itself a Greek word coming from epikomen. Um, but the most obviously is the Greeks had symposia. They had you'd have a symposium, and people um, drank and philosophized late into the night, and um, and you know it it says that in that Plato's symposium, the crowing of the rooster reminds guests to go home in the morning. And they would philosophize late into the night. And there are many similarities between how the Passover Seder was structured by the rabbis in the time of the Mishnah and, um, and what the Greco-Roman world were embracing around the symposium. Um, where they spoke about love, beauty, food, and drink, Jews spoke about the miracles leaving, leaving e Egypt, um, different things to talk about, but structured in similar ways. But I think one of the most important differences, although there are many, is that the symposium was for the elite, the elite, right? Whereas the Passover Seder is specifically for everyone. Let all who are hungry come and eat, right? And so one of the rabbinic um, uh, um, choices to distance itself from the symposium, even though em they embrace so much, was specifically an egalitarian ethos to have all who are welcome, uh, you know, all who are interested come participate in the Seder as opposed to the elitist approach of the philosophers. Okay, friends, what does it mean to live a good life? Is it more important to say what is true than what is diplomatic? Can we actually know anything at all? These are just some of the questions posed by the thought of Socrates, the first of the philosophers to be unignorable by Jewish thought and by the rest of the world. Before we jump into Socrates, we should zoom out and think about the relationship with the Jews and the Greeks. 
The Jews generally weren't super impressed with their surrounding cultures, but they certainly were with the Greeks. Here we see engagement with rational thought, the birth of Western philosophy, and attempts to synthesize tradition with philosophical thinking. The Jews are also ambivalent about the Greek emphasis on aesthetics and the obsession with beauty and hedonism. Famously, Rabban Gamliel, one of the greatest sages, was in the bathhouse where there was a statue of Aphrodite. This is in the Talmudic Tractate of Avodazara. Yavan is considered to represent Greece, and he's considered to be a descendant of Yefet, who's a son of Noah, right? Noah, Noah has three sons. The Torah was translated into Greek, the Septuagint, and the Jews had an ambivalent relationship to all of this. The Jews were accessing Greek thought through Roman society, which has a, a kind of a new flavor to Greek thought, of course, since Rome was obsessed with imperialism and with power in general. But Roman culture is still an extension of Greek thought, even though it evolves. This is why we often refer to the Greco-Roman influence, like some today talk about the Judeo-Christian influence on the Western world. The Jews were deeply influenced by this society, as we are today by American society. Josephus Flav Flavius wrote in his book, The Antiquities, they were desirous to leave the laws of their country and the Jewish way of living according to them, to follow the king's laws and the, and, and the Grecian way of living. Therefore, they desired to build a gymnasium in Jerusalem. And when they had been given permission, they also attended to the circumcision of their genitals, that even when they were naked, they might appear to be Greeks. Accordingly, they left off all the customs that belonged to their own country and imitated the practices of the other nations. And so we see one of the earliest forms of kind of a deep assimilation based upon a deep desire to be a part of, 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 of the society. So was Jewish assimilation into Greek culture all bad, though? Some people don't think so. Here is um, from a JTS commencement address in 1966, what Professor Gershon Cohen uh, said he called, in a speech he called the blessing of assimilation. A frank appraisal of the periods in which Judaism flourished will indicate not, not only has a certain amount of assimilation and acculturation not impeded Jewish continuity and creativity, but that in a profound sense, this assimilation and acculturation was a stimulus to original thinking and expression, a source of, of renewed vitality. To a considerable degree, the Jews survived as a vital group and as a pulsating culture because they changed their names, their language, and their patterns of thought and expression. So this is kind of a radical thing to say, Many people think, oh, assimilation, bad word, Jews just becoming like everyone around them, right? Or Japanese assimilation, Muslim assimilation, right? Mexican assimilation, that people are forgetting where they've come from and are now speaking like they sound like the common American, dressed like the common American. But he's saying over here, huh, is that always so bad? Actually, some levels of assimilation and acculturation are necessary for survival. The rabbis also teach, or they imagine, that some Greeks had some level of respect for the Jews. One Talmudic passage records from Yoma, as soon as Alexander the Great met Rabbi Shimon Hatzadik face to face, he descended from his chariot and bowed down to him. The servants protested, 
such a great king as yourself bows to the Jew? Alexander replied, this face, explained Alexander, appeared to me before every battle which I won, right? So Alexander imagines a dream or an illusion where in every battle, this rabbi's face appears to him. Um, and because of that, he bows down to him. Now, this may be true. Um, my hunch is that it's probably rabbinic imagination because the rabbis and the Jews were so powerless and so dismissed that it's hard to imagine Alexander the Great did such a thing. Um, and I think they're kind of dreaming of what it would have been like to have had respect in, in a culture that didn't respect them. But who knows? Some will respect the Jews when we talk, dress, and act like them, but not if we are distinct and different from them. Napoleon Bonaparte famously said, to the Jews as French, everything. To the Jews as Jews, nothing. <laughs> That is a, po a popular attitude toward the Jews in America today, too. If th they're mostly assimilated and you can't tell any difference between them and us, then we respect that. But those Orthodox Jews who look or talk or eat differently, we're not so interested in those, those folks. Unfortunately, it's not only Gentiles, but also Jews who are in, oftentimes embarrassed of Jews who look and act different than the norms in Christian society. With Socrates, we see the beginning of Greek philosophy and Western philosophy as we know them. But despite his influence, we cannot know for sure what he actually said. As like many impactful figures in Jewish thought, he didn't leave any of his own writings. Instead, we only know what's written about Socrates in the works of his student Plato. Among the most famous of his sayings written down by Plato is the unexamined life is not worth living of a human being. For me, this is a feeling those in the Jewish community should find relatable. Many of Judaism's most common rituals cause us to reflect on our lives and ask questions. If we are to pray, we must first ask ourselves, what is, what is it that we are in need of to pray for? When the high holidays come, we must engage in teshuva, a process that forces us to ask ourselves about what we have done wrong in our lives, where we're going in the wrong directions. Shabbat, whether we're conscious of it or not, causes us every week to reflect on our purpose. So too, contemplative prayer or meditation can bring us to this kind of much-needed inner work. The role of knowledge is seminal among these virtues. More broadly, Socrates pushes us from being mindlessly obedient to being questioners. He's considered the founder of Western philosophy precisely because he doesn't take anything for granted. The Socratic method, which is inherently dialectical, is an attempt to create a dialogue between opposing ideas. One can find a similarity to this in the Jewish tradition. When learning Jewish texts, the goal is not to take the text at face value, but to ask questions that emerge from a close reading of the text, to challenge the text. These questions focus on what about the text does it make sense or how the text might be contradictory with other texts. Through the process of asking and answering these questions, the meaning of the text is discerned. According to the rabbis, this is a process that never ends since there are 70 faces of Torah. Shivim Panim Latorah. Socrates was additionally a courageous figure. However, his pursuit of philosophy caused him to be accused of corrupting the youth with his unique thinking and having irreverence toward the gods. Right? Something that 
um, if you recall in our conversation around around Confucius, Confucius avoid avoided talking about it. Also, the Buddha, who di just didn't want to talk about it. But Socrates wants to challenge it, and that's going to get him in trouble. He was eventually convicted of his crimes by Athens, but rather than fleeing as many expected he would, he bravely stayed and voluntarily, accept, voluntarily accepted his punishment. Abraham, the founder of Judaism, is understood as having followed a similar path. According to the Midrash, Abraham destroys the idols in his father's shop and as a result is brought before the king for blasphemy. When the king urges him to worship idols on penalty of death, Abraham refuses. However, unlike Socrates, who died by drinking hemlock, Abraham was thrown into a fiery furnace and saved by God, according to the Midrash. Socrates was the original gadfly, someone unafraid to say controversial things about the ruling political powers in order to provoke change. According to Plato's apology, Socrates says in his trial, if you put me to death, you will not easily find another who, to use a rather absurd figure, attaches himself to the city as a gadfly to a horse, which though large and well-bred is sluggish on account of its size and needs to be aroused by stinging. <laughs> so he views himself as stinging the horse to get it moving. His form of philosophy cannot be separated from the political realm which means that his work is inherently engaged with questions of justice. Socrates' courage was additionally reflected in how he didn't philosophize for the purpose of defending political positions, winning arguments, or making money, but simply to move toward a more just society with more thoughtful citizens. The controversy Socrates provoked through his constant questioning of established norms can best be understood in light of Pirke Avot, where it differentiates between controversy that is constructive and controversy that is destructive. Here's what it says over there in Pirkei Avot. Which is the controversy that is for the sake of heaven? Such was the controversy of Hillel and Shammai, a good faith debate for the purpose of finding truth. And which is the controversy that is not for the sake of heaven? Such was the controversy of Korach and his congregation, a rebellion for the purpose of acquiring power. If you recall, they're the ones who challenge Moshe, that they're just as holy as him. Why should he be the leader? And so here the rabbis distinguish between argumentation, which is generative, and argumentation, which is destructive. We would recognize Socrates' constant questioning as an attempt to offer controversy for the sake of heaven. It was his belief that this would lead to a greater understanding of the truth. While it makes sense why Socrates would annoy so many of those who encountered him, his approach was not directly to, to preach truth, but to expose through, through a dialectical method others' contradictions and their lack of knowledge. Socrates is commonly credited with the phrase, all I know is that I know nothing. However, this is a, this is a simplification. Here's the fuller quote, according to Plato. In, in the Apology. I am wiser than this man, for neither of us really knows anything fine and good, but this man thinks he knows something when he does not, whereas I, as, as I do not know anything, do not think I know either. I seem then in just this little thing to be wiser than this man at any rate, that what I do know, I do not think I know either. <laughs> and so, um, 
you know, it's often said in yeshiva culture that the more you know, the more you realize you don't know, that the fools are the ones who think they have it figured out. Um, and Socrates certainly would have agreed with that. In a way, this is similar to Socrates. There are a lot of Jewish texts that emphasize how important it is for us to know the limits of our knowledge. We often think we know more than we actually know. And if we are to learn, we must recognize there is so much more we do not. Think about the realm of science. I mean, only somebody who didn't, who wasn't, you know, a doc, didn't have a medical degree or a PhD in science would think they actually, um, you know, understood it all. This is a major theme in Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed, where he argues that too often people try to understand complicated philosophical questions without the proper preparation. As a result, they are drawn to answers that are incorrect and perhaps even antithetical to, the, to our, our ethical project. Socrates' statement also finds similar expression in the mystical teachings of Rabbi Nachman, who would frequently say, the culmination of all knowledge is when one realizes that one knows nothing. That being said, even though the Jewish tradition values a degree of humility, it still believes that knowledge is possible. In Pirkei Avot, it is recorded, Ben Zoma says, who is wise? One who learns from every person. As it is said, from all who taught me have I gained understanding. Right? That is not a teaching that expresses that we know nothing, but rather there is something to learn from everyone. Again, from here, it's clear that we must be humble about what we know, because no matter how learned we may be, there's always something to be learned from others, even those we think perhaps to be beneath us in some sense. Socrates wanted each person to fulfill the good life, but he asks, what is good? What is right and just? He believed that virtues, the arete, are absolute for all human beings, and they're not relative. That makes him profoundly ancient and profoundly pre-modern in his thinking. This appears to differ slightly from an approach taken by Judaism's Maimonides, who was influenced by Aristotle and taught the golden mean. He wrote in his Mishnah Torah, if a person finds that their nature tends or is disposed to one of these extremes, they should turn back and improve so as to walk in the way of good people, which is the right way. The right way is the mean in each group of dispositions common to humanity, namely that that disposition which is equally distant from the two extremes in each case, in each class, not being nearer to the one than the other. However, Plato's point is an epistemological one concerned with truth. And Aristotle's point is one of behavior, how we should live. Nonetheless, we might wonder how absolute truths might translate into practice in extreme or moderate ways. To be sure, Socrates emphasized philosophy as a process of discerning virtue, even if it wasn't always clear exactly what that means. Plato and Aristotle each take the idea and interpret it in their own ways. It's crucial to note here that Socrates, on the other hand, believed that people fall into vice due to a lack of knowledge, right? That the problem in Musar of, of character development for, um, for some is behavioral. We haven't practiced enough. But for, for others, and Socrates would agree, it's truly understanding ourselves and understanding the virtues. 
It's a lack of knowledge, not of behavioral modification. People do wrong because they don't know what is right. But if they know what is right, they will do what is right, he thought. That is why knowledge is the primary pursuit of life. Other virtues will flow from knowledge. In this way, he differs somewhat from the Jewish tradition. For the rabbi's sin or wrongdoing is not the result of a lack of knowledge, but caused by the desires we have. What is often referred to as the Yetzir Hara, the evil will. While knowledge is seen as essential for improving oneself, knowledge alone is never enough. One must also directly grapple with one's desires, take responsibility for them, and learn how they can be channeled appropriately. I say channeled rather than squashed, because for the Hasidic teachers, you don't want to squash your desire for, um, you know, for ego or for profit or for desire in general, as we talked about with the Buddha, but rather you want to channel it towards the good. It does appear that Socrates, when his father died, inherited a significant amount of money. So he didn't need to earn a living, which was obviously helpful for him. It also appears that when he was sentenced to death, Socrates was given the choice of exile as mentioned, but instead he accepted a guilty verdict and the death penalty. In the time of the massively impactful Greek philosophers, Jewish thought was entering the era when it was to be forever influenced by these thinkers. Greek philosophers are not, for example, quoted in the Talmud. And the rabbis go so far as to say that it is forbidden for one to teach their son Greek wisdom. However, the Greek ways of thinking, such as inductive reasoning, begin to influence other cultures. With Socrates, we see the beginning of the process of Greek philosophy coming to define what it means to be intellectual, to study the classics. While Judaism learns from philosophy, it does not define itself by it. The Greeks worshiped human reason, the Jews divine revelation, Sachs wrote in his book, The Great Partnership. The Greeks gave the West its philosophy and science. The Jews, obliquely, gave it its prophets and religious faith. This distinction is of great importance. Reason alone cannot serve as a source of transcendent meaning in our lives. While it can help us navigate the world more effectively and efficiently, it cannot easily explain those things that are most important to us. The ones we love and the values we see as worthy of dedication and sacrifice are rarely, if ever, fully explicable by reason. Rather, they are best understood through the religious idea of holiness. As Sachs summarized it, Judaism is about relationships. The Greeks asked, what exists? Jews asked, what is the relationship between the things that exist? It is through revelation that we learn what it means to be in relation with God. And it is through our relationship with God that we learn how, how our lives should be directed towards holiness. Sachs expounded on this by saying, the Greeks and many in the Western world who inherited their tradition, believed in the holiness of beauty. Jews believed in the opposite. Hadrat Kodesh, the beauty of holiness. Give to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, right? Let me just say that part again. The Greeks thought that the beautiful was holy, whereas the Jews taught the holy is beautiful. A couple hundred years after Socrates, 
the Hebrew Bible would be translated into Greek, which Jews would consider both miraculous and a watering down of Jewish knowledge. Relatedly, it would lay the groundwork for Christianity to spread by way of Gentiles familiar with the stories of the Hebrew Bible from visiting Greek-speaking diaspora synagogues. Infamously, Greek culture and even religion would come to take over the wider Jewish culture and even the Jerusalem temple, culminating with the Maccabean revolt and the story of Hanukkah, which literally means dedication, a reestablishing of what we see as the proper Judaism. However, purity from Greek influence is not something that's actually possible, nor is it something we should strive for necessarily. As we mentioned early, earlier with the Passover Seder, one of the most popular and beloved rit Jewish rituals is based on the Greek symposium, a night of question asking and critical inquiry. Afikoman, the ritual in which we hide the matzah, the Seder, comes from the Greek, Greek word epikoman or dessert. The design of the whole Pesach experience by the rabbis, in a sense, we owe to Socrates. Now, there's many other similarities, just like um, at the symposium, they drank wine before the philosophizing, during and after um, the meal. They, um, they engage this pedagogic, pedagogic use of questions and intellectual discussion. Um, and they engage in certain tools to keep kids awake. Of course, they also reclined. And famous art about the Greek meals there and Roman meals, they're reclining. And they dipped their food and had hors d'oeuvres, as we see as well. However, one of the other differences worthy of mentioning is, is with the afikoman itself. As I mentioned, epikoman means dessert. And one of the interesting uh, changes is that at the symposium, um, they kind of had an after party, if you will, um, a drunken kind of after party where they would go to their neighbor's houses. And um, But the, for the afikoman, there was a prohibition against having this afikoman after the Passover sacrifice to kind of avoid this after party of drunkenness. The ancient Greek philosopher, and we're moving towards a conclusion here, um, Athenius explained the leader of the symposium took pride in gathering about him many persons of culture and entertaining them with conversation, now proposing topics worthy of inquiry, now disclosing solutions of, their own, of his own, for he never put his questions without previous study or in a haphazard way, but with the utmost critical, even Socratic acumen, so that all admired the keen observation showed by his question. So friends, whether we admit it or not, our lives and thinking and even ritual as Jews and as Western people has been changed by the life of Socrates. The task throughout history, as well as now, has been to filter and discern for what outside methods bring us closer to the truth. We will not be moving off the Greeks too quickly. We'll have plenty more time there with Plato next week and then with Aristotle. Um, and then we will fast forward well beyond the Greeks. Uh, and it's not gonna take us very long to get into modernity at all. So we can enjoy this, this kind of uh, short-lived period with the classics. Um, but um, uh, yeah, it's gonna be an exciting ride into, into Plato and into Aristotle, and we're gonna see just how deeply influenced all of Western philosophy. Some might say all Western philosophy is almost a response to Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Um, and, and then how deeply influenced Christianity and Judaism most certainly both are 
um, uh, and certainly Islam as well. I mean, all of Western religion. And I hope you, um, anyone who is celebrating Pesach has an enjoyable, meaningful Seder tomorrow night. I also hope we can think about in the Seder experience where the rabbis constructed this in line with the symposium um, approach and where they chose to distance it, um, you know, in, in, in some other ways. And it's really throughout the entire experience. So Chag Kasher Vesmeach, hope everyone has a joyful Passover and looking forward to seeing you next Tuesday.